Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Another very special episode of the Roses and Rhetoric Show, uh, episode number 23. Joining us today, author of Medical Nihilism, Dr. Jacob Stegina. We'll be talking about his book today and then uh, slowly building towards some, some big themes uh, that we cover on the show, namely things like, uh, you know, trying to engage in innovation and uh, really trying to engage the public in some of these discussions as well. I'm going to pass it over to, to Joe to get some more introductions and then to start some questions with the author of the book. Yeah, Jacob, it's absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, me and my co-host have been big fans of your work, needless to say. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Um, my first question for you is, I'd like, I'd be interested to hear a little bit about your own, in your own words, about your background and what led you to end up at, in Cambridge and then what drew you ultimately to the field of medical nihilism? Uh, sure. So my academic background was very eclectic. I studied different things in university. I studied some science and biology, some philosophy, and I kept doing this degree after degree, really. So I, I got two degrees in Toronto, two master's degrees in Toronto, and then a PhD in California in philosophy. Um, so I was trained in my PhD as a philosopher of science. And then I started thinking about medicine and medical research. Um, after my PhD, I had a research fellowship for a couple of years back in Toronto. And then my first uh, professorship was in Utah. Um, and so during those years, my kind of early stages of my career, I thought more and more about medicine and medical research. Um, I was really impressed by reading some sort of like popular science books about medicine written by medical insiders, like people like the editors of big medical journals, Marsha Angel, for example, was a very famous um, editor of a medical journal, New England Journal of Medicine, who was writing very critical things about medicine. So I was sort of surprised. Here are these insiders, the chief editors of big medical journals, writing these really scathing critiques about medicine and medical research. And so in those early years of my academic career, I wanted to make sense of that kind of genre wanted to understand what those criticisms were all about. So that's that's what led me to this topic, medical nihilism. And let's build off of that just a little bit. And for our, our, our viewers that are that are listening to this, that the phrase medical nihilism will probably at once invoke confusion and dread, which I don't think is really your point with it. But in fact, you make it very clear that, it, that that is not your point with the book. Uh, the, you, you organize the book in, in, the, in the form of a very uh, formalized argument where you basically give some definitions, you work through a series of arguments from those propositions, and then you end up with a conclusion. And the conclusion is medical nihilism. For the sake of the audience who haven't read the book, can you give us just a very uh, quick uh, uh, description of what medical nihilism means? And then we'll go into some, some key arguments that build towards that conclusion. Sure. Okay. So, so in general, this term nihilism can have different connotations. Um, the term medical nihilism is actually a gesture towards history. So in the 19th century, this term was used, medical nihilism. Um, in Paris and Boston in the 19th century, it was fashionable to be skeptical about medicine, skeptical about medical research, even among physicians, like the, the dean of the Harvard Medical School called himself a medical nihilist. Um, so nihilism in general, it can have a, like a, what we would say, what philosophers would say is metaphysical um, 
um, position, which is the belief that some really important thing that some people think exists, in fact, doesn't exist. So like atheism about God, for instance, is nihilism about the existence of God. Um, but this position can also have what philosophers would call an epistemological thesis, which is, the, which is to say, there may or may not be this really important good out there, but we just have a hard time accessing, hard time knowing whether or not there is that good or valuable thing out there. So in the book, um, I intend the term to have both connotations. And then there's a kind of emotional connotation to it as well. So if one ends up being really skeptical about the existence of some valuable thing, then that's too bad, that's disappointing, right? right. Um, so, I mean, it would be, be great if God existed. It would be great if medicine was wonderful. And if we end up you know, deciding that medicine isn't so wonderful, that's kind of disappointing. So, so medical nihilism has all of these different connotations. Um, in some cases, it's the denial that, that medicine is indeed um, as good as many people believe it is. And then there's an issue about whether or not we can know whether or not medicine is all that good. So a lot of the focus of the book is on medical research methods. Um, yeah. So that's the meaning of medical nihilism. Right, right. Um, can you, uh, so you gave a working definition of medical nihilism there. Can you provide some additional framework for what constitutes a, a medical intervention? I, I saw this concept come up a lot in your work and then perhaps at a high level describe one should have such little confidence in it today. Yeah, thanks. So when, when articulated in very concrete terms, medical nihilism basically says, we ought to have little confidence in the effectiveness of medical intervention. So I use that term medical intervention very, very generally. Um, now, as a matter of fact, most of my arguments in the book focus on pharmaceuticals. Um, and I do that for a reason. Uh, pharmaceuticals are by far the most widely used kind of medical intervention today. Um, but also I think the arguments for medical nihilism are just the strongest when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Sometimes surgeons will email me and say, you know, a lot of the arguments you raised for medical nihilism in, with pharmaceuticals would also apply to surgery. Some people say you should also apply these arguments to vaccines or you should apply these arguments to screening programs. Um, and you know, the, the book was already, in some sense, excessively ambitious. And so I decided to keep things focused on pharmaceuticals. Um, so this term me medical intervention is meant to be fully general. Um, but just as a matter of fact, most of the arguments in the book focus on pharmaceuticals. And with regards to, to building out the master argument, you, you basically use uh, a, a Bayesian approach to formulating basically what ends up being an equation. And so for the people that are only listening to this, um, you end up with basically a, a ratio of three different terms. You have two terms in the numerator and one term in the denominator. And uh, what Jacob argues throughout the book is that basically the terms on the numerator are small, the term in the denominator is large. When you do the math, the result of which is the probability of a certain intervention being effective, um, given the evidence that we have, uh, that number ends up being small. So that is kind of how the argument builds itself. For the sake of you know, kind of building out that framework, could, you, could we work through some of those terms that we have in, in this equation? Uh, and maybe kind of in a general way, so people that are listening, you know, don't think that you need to be doing math in your head. Instead, 
uh, you know, we'll, we'll have Jacob walk us through what the different terms mean and uh, why each one of them is small in, in turn. Uh, sure, we, we, we can do that. Um, so there is, as you say, the way I formulate the master argument in the book involves this formal apparatus um, Bayes theorem. Now this is not my idiosyncratic invention. It's a very standard way of thinking about scientific inference. Um, one can, I, I believe one can be a medical nihilist or be convinced by the arguments for medical nihilism without fussing with the formal basis of the argument. If we, if we were to just zoom in on the premises of the argument, yeah. I think that's convincing enough without the kind of formal apparatus. Nevertheless, though, I do think that the formal apparatus <clears throat> can be, um, can help us kind of bring together different strands of the arguments that appear throughout the book. Um, so what philosophers like to think about scientific inference is using this mm, formal apparatus based theorem. So our confidence in some hypothesis like this drug will do blah, blah, blah is represented by what's called a conditional probability. So that term, if we just apply a very standard theorem, Bayes theorem equals um, this equation. <laughs> and in the equation, as you noted, are these two terms in the, in the numerator and one term in the denominator. So the terms in the numerator are what we would call the likelihood. And this is representing basically just empirical evidence. So it's just, it's direct empirical evidence which informs the likelihood. One of the main terms in Bayes' theorem is what's called the prior, the prior probability of the hypothesis. And that term represents our background theories about the hypothesis. And then the third term, the term in the denominator is called the expectancy of the evidence. And this term I argue in the book is represented by, or, or is determined by how reliable the research methods are. So the more reliable the research methods are, um, the lower the expectancy is. I can explain that more in, in detail if you want. So those are the three terms. And then a huge task of the book is to argue for the premises that you already noted. So the two terms in the uh, numerator are low and the term in the denominator is high. Um, any follow-up to that, Jim? Um, so for people that are listening, and that sounds like an earful, and it definitely is, we're, what, what we'll be doing a little bit later on in the interview is we're going to work, work through some of those key arguments to kind of explain why we end up with, with that conclusion. But before we're getting there, we probably have some more table setting to do. Um, I wanted to give people a kind of a roadmap of the direction that we're going to be heading in, uh, kind of following the same outline in, in the book. But before we get into that, I'll turn it back over to Joe for some more you know, kind of table setting questions before that discussion begins. Um, reading through your book, um, Jacob, I, I really liked how you really set the table and set up a good fundamentals um, before leading up to your ultimate argument at the end. I think that one of the biggest things of your book that was an eye-opener for me was just how non-skeptical non I have been in the past regarding medical research and medical studies and perhaps even studies in general. And I do find it difficult as I do research for certain topics or as I try to determine if certain news is right or wrong or whatnot, that I have trouble determining which studies are reliable and which studies are maybe not so reliable and could be deceiving. 
Um, you talk about some of the methods for how you can track those, but at a high level, could you give some advice for maybe the, the standard consumer of news to know whether a study is legit or not? Sure, yeah, thanks for that. Um, this is a really, really crucial concern. So in medical research, especially research on medical interventions like drugs, um, what's taken to be the gold standard is the randomized control trial or sometimes meta-analyses of randomized control trials. Meta-analyses are just bringing together a bunch of different randomized control trials into one analysis. Um, many physicians and policymakers and readers of the New York Times uh, assume that if a randomized control trial says X, then X is true. Or if a meta-analysis says that this drug does blah, 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 then we can conclude that this drug does blah, blah, blah. Um, and unfortunately, that's just not the case. So mm, trials, randomized trials and meta-analyses are shot through with many different kinds of, and this is one of the key arguments in the book. So I introduced this term malleability of research methods. So these research methods are malleable. They can be bent in different ways. And because of the profit incentive in medical research, the bending tends to be in favor of the uh, interventions that are being tested. Now, your question was, um, given all of that, do we have any rules of thumb about assessing particular trials? Like when we read the newspaper, we read that this drug does blah, blah, blah. Um, do we have any rules of thumb which we can rely on to ask, like, is this a reliable report or is this an unreliable report? And I think there are some rules of thumb. So for instance, trials that are funded and performed by institutions and scientists who are independent of the intervention being tested tend to be better. So most medical research is funded by industrial sponsors who manufacture the intervention that's being tested. And that's, there's an obvious financial conflict of interest there. Some uh, studies uh, are funded by say government agencies employing scientists who don't stand to benefit if the intervention is successful or not. And those studies are often much larger in scope and longer in duration and have better um, checks and balances. So those studies tend to be more reliable. The, um, is, real quick, is that something that's explicitly mentioned at the forefront of a study or is that something, yeah. where, where can I find that info? Yeah, good question, yeah. So often that's the case. So often, uh, or typically that's the case. Um, scientists who are authors of a, of a publication are required to state their institutional affiliation and their source of funds. Um, and so it's, it's typically the case that if a report is um, funded by say, the National Institute of Health, then that'll be noted in the first page of a publication of a, of a medical report. And I, I, building off of that, the malleability of meta-analysis, I, I, that was probably the most like shocking chapter in the book because one of the things that you point out is that basically what makes them malleable is not just the incentive, but also the fact that at every step of the way and even doing a meta-analysis, there are choices being made by doctors that are somewhat arbitrary or at least not uh, wholly defined so that you can have two doctors both do meta-analyses, but because of you know, personal idiosyncrasies, 
they'll make different decisions and that results in different outcomes. And sometimes these outcomes are in conflict with one another. Uh, and so I, I, if I remember properly, it's the, the overall intent of a meta-analysis would be to provide objectivity to randomized control studies. And then through that objectivity, put a constraint on the outcome range of whatever parameter you're trying to assess. But through this malleability, um, those premises fall apart. Maybe spend a little bit of time talking about the relationship between objectivity and constraint and different ways that uh, personal idiosyncrasies can affect the actual meta-analysis being done by, by doctors or by, by researchers. Right, okay, yeah, good, thanks, yeah. So, um, so in order to perform a meta-analysis, uh, a scientist has to make a bunch of different decisions. Now the hope in doing a meta-analysis is, so meta-analysis you know, brings together individual, the reports of individual trials, multiple individual trials into one overall analysis. The idea is that maybe a, one particular trial is biased or one particular trial is too small to detect uh, an important effect. And so if we bring all the trials together, um, then we'll get at the truth of whether or not this intervention does blah, blah, blah. Um, and so meta-analyses are in, in medical research are usually thought to be the very best of, the very best kind of evidence we can get about some intervention. And so, yeah, you mentioned this notion of objectivity. The idea is that meta-analyses are, are intended to be just super objective. They're, they're intended to be getting us at the truth of whether or not some intervention does blah, blah, blah. And what I do in the book in this one particular chapter is argue that because of all of the different decisions that have to be made in a meta-analysis, like which studies to include, which outcome measures to use, um, whether or not to, um, how to, how to deal with outlying data, for example, there are all these different choices that have to be made that allows multiple meta-analyses on the same, about the same hypotheses to reach contradictory conclusions. So this notion of constraint it involves getting at the same answer if you are doing analysis on the same evidence. Um, so we, we, we hope and most of us think that meta-analyses are constrained in this way. So if you feed in you know, all the evidence about say this particular drug into a meta-analysis, you'll get a single answer uh, as output and that, out, that answer is a guide to the truth. And unfortunately, what I, you know, what I argue in the book is that meta-analyses just don't have that kind of constraint, unfortunately. Um, one of the topics you talked about is this like, idea and a concept of a magic bullet um, in terms of, of a very targeted, a precise targeted uh, intervention for a medical disease or a medical shortcoming. Um, I like the story that you plugged in there about where that term magic bullet comes from. Um, I, I think you said it comes from a German folktale called the Marksman, where a young man makes a deal with the devil to get these magic bullets that will always hit the target. And then ultimately the bullets end up hitting his beloved, his beloved uh, person. And I liked how you extended that topic of the magic bullet to this concept of medical nihilism. Um, can you just talk a little bit about 
how rare magic bullets actually exist in medicine and maybe just give examples, some that actually did work, work out? Sure, yeah, right. So um, originally this term, in, when applied to medicine, this term comes from the chemist Paul Ehrlich who was trying to discover very effective drugs. And he explicitly made reference to this term in folktale. And it's a kind of, as you note, it's a kind of painful irony because what we want are magic bullets to actually help us. And in this folktale, the magic bullet ends up you know, killing um, the beloved of, of the hero. Um, so what Ehrlich wanted was an intervention that would target a disease with a high degree of specificity and a high degree of potency. So specificity, so that it would only target the disease and not like our normal physiology and potency to actually like get rid of the disease. But he was looking for an intervention for syphilis, like a, a bacterial infection. Um, germ theory of disease had, had been recently discovered. And so they had good reasons to think that syphilis was called caused by uh, bacterial infection and Ehrlich wanted to target this bacterium. And he ended up finding uh, an intervention which arguably was a magic bullet. Um, so, so magic bullets, the way I characterize them, characterize them in the book is exactly like this. Interventions that target the disease, the causal basis of a disease with specificity and potency. Now, in the history of medicine, there haven't been very many of them, but those magic bullets that we do have, many of them were discovered roughly between 1920 and 1960. There was this kind of like golden era of medical breakthroughs. Um, so for example, antibiotics like penicillin or streptomycin, these are, these are interventions that target the invading causal basis of disease like the bacterium with a high degree of specificity and a high degree of potency. Or another example would be exogenous insulin for type one diabetes. So if you just give a person who has type one diabetes exogenous insulin, you can really help them dramatically. Um, there, there are some examples like this where the, the, when the causal basis of a disease is very simple, like an invading bacterium, or your body is supposed to have X, but it doesn't have X. So give it X. Like scurvy, you know, scurvy is caused by not having vitamin C. So what's the best cure for scurvy? Just drink some orange juice, right? Um, so, so those diseases that have a very simple causal basis tend to be the kinds of diseases for which we can in fact discover magic bullets. Um, and, and as I said, many of those were discovered in this kind of golden era of medical breakthroughs, 1920, 1940, around there. And, and to follow up on that, uh, another uh, part of your book that I really liked was you talked about, you gave a, a overall history of medical nihilism and you discussed how being skeptical of the current modern medical systems of the day really isn't an uncommon thing. And I remember you, you, you even mentioned some quotes from some uh, from uh, Nietzsche and Hippocrates and some of these other guys. Um, I think my favorite one was a quote by something, I think it was by Voltaire. And the quote was, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. And that, that really stuck out to me um, because it, it creates this impression that that's kind of what medicine is today, is that it's, 
it's this form of you just go and there's something to be said about someone caring for you and giving you attention and putting you on maybe even like a placebo type effect that actually does have pragmatic real um, results. Um, do you, do you think that we're getting better at our medical research and at our medical treatments, or do you think that this is just a function of civilization and humanity that there's always going to be some skepticism and some gaps in this field? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for this question. I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot packed in there. So um, those quotes from, from his, historical commentary on medicine, you know, big theme of those quotes, it was exactly, as you say, medicine is in some sense about caring for patients, but not so much about curing the diseases that they suffer from. And I, I think that a, a lot of medicine today is indeed like that. Um, so some of the things that medicine is very good at, for instance, is mitigating pain. Um, so if you suffer from some kind of pain or if, you know, if you're gonna go to the dentist or have some surgery, anesthetics are amazing. You know, I'd, I'd way rather go to the dentist today than 200 years ago, you know? Um, so pain modulation is a form of caring for a patient. Um, or dressing wounds, for instance, being hygienic with patients. Um, these are aspects of caring for patients that don't involve targeting the causal basis of the disease. Um, so, and medicine has gotten better and better at that. Um, providing the kind of context, the broad, broader social context in which people can recover. Um, but the second part of your question was, is medicine developing its technologies to more effectively manage the diseases themselves? And I think that, you know, in some sense, yes, of course. I mean, medicine developed some technological progress a little bit. Um, and I think that we did have this era of breakthroughs in medical discoveries, you know, a couple of generations ago. Um, and modern medicine today isn't without its breakthroughs. I mean, they, they do occur sometimes, um, but not nearly as frequently as many people think. So, so the thesis of medical nihilism is not, there are never any medical breakthroughs or like no medical interventions are, are useful, but rather, um, they're much rarer than we tend to think they are. And their and medical interventions are much less good than we tend to think they are. And I, I wanna build off of that because um, another kind of, what I, what I appreciated in the uh, chapters outlining these arguments is the idea that in, in various ways, the protocols that we have for evaluating research are biased towards approving new interventions rather than not approving new interventions. I will, I will tell you that before this book, my, my political biases, I would not have guessed that, that was in fact the case. And I, in one area in particular, well, rather uh, two, uh, but the first one is the idea of, of a hollow hunt for harms and how that ties in with the idea of a magic bullet that through specificity, a magic bullet effect or rather reduces the odds of a side effect by just interacting with fewer parts of your body. But that with medications that have uh, a, a, a broader profile of the different uh, re, um, parts of the cell that they attach to, you run the higher choice of, or rather the higher likelihood of having a side effect. Could you talk about the hollow hunt for harms and uh, why it is the case now that research uh, essentially favors finding drug benefits over finding drug harms? Okay, okay. Uh, so there's a, a lot packed into this question. Um, 
before I before I dive into this question, one one metaphor that I like to use in some talks that I give about this subject um, will help get this idea of thinking about side effects off the ground. So imagine, we close our eyes and we imagine a big cascading waterfall. Uh, so uh, Joseph told me he's in Portland, you know, I'm sure there's waterfalls everywhere. So imagine just like this big, like hundred foot cascading waterfall. And you imagine there's a fish swimming at the bottom of the waterfall and you're at the top of the waterfall and you want to get the fish a glass of wine, like enough wine to just like a properly have a nice glass of wine with dinner. And so you ask, how much wine are you going to have to pour into the top of the cascade to get that fish a glass of wine? Because we know as you pour wine into the top of the cascade, it's going to kind of diffuse and, you know, get, get washed out as it falls through the cascade. So you'd have to pour in just like many, many liters of wine at the top of the cascade. And I think that's how our, that's how our natural physiology is. So when we think about how drugs work, drugs work in a way, drugs are what are called ligands. Ligands bind to receptors and turn up or turn down the activation of that receptor. It turns out that there's like a one-to-many relationship between ligand and receptor binding. So a single ligand can bind to multiple different kinds of receptors. Then there's a one-to-many relationship between activated receptor and the biochemical pathway that gets turned up or turned down. And then there's a one-to-many relationship between activated pathway and physiological effects in different tissues. So from ligand to receptor to pathway to physiological effect, there's this cascading complexity of consequences, just like in the waterfall. So, so that's the kind of physiological basis for thinking about side effects. Now, the way trials, to, to come back to your question, the way randomized trials are designed, they, they are tuned to be very sensitive to detecting benefits of interventions, even if those benefits are very small. And they're um, tuned away from detecting harms of interventions. Now, one extremely simple way of doing this is just to not look for harms in the first place. So when you design a trial, you, you decide what you're going to look for as consequences of the drug, right? So you can, you can look for the drug lowering blood pressure, but you can decide, well, maybe let's not look at weight gain or let's not look at sexual dysfunction. I mean, these are decisions that researchers have to make. Um, but then other more technical issues are the size of the trial and the duration of the trial. So many observable, observable benefits of some interventions occur after say a few weeks of taking a drug, but many harmful effects of drugs occur like months or years later. So if you happen to have background theoretical reason to think that that's the case for this particular drug that you're testing, then it makes sense for you to design a trial which is going to last say four weeks long. So, so there are, I mean, it took me an entire chapter to, to, to make this argument. Right, so right. It's, but, but the short story just is that um, some, you know, trials are designed to detect benefits of drugs, but not to detect harms of drugs. And it's those very trials that feed into the regulatory system. And, and let me just follow up on that real quick, and then I'll, I'll pass it back over to Joe. But uh, one of the things that I think, and you mentioned this a little bit in your answer, but just to kind of bring the point home for the listeners, is the idea of time duration. That if you get a benefit from a drug early on, but a side effect takes 10 years to manifest itself, 
unless you're doing a really expensive trial over 10 years, you're not going to see those uh, side effects. And to your point, a lot of the times the studies that are doing those long-term studies are precisely the ones that are that are funded by the public, that are funded by the government or by different groups like that, and not being funded by uh, the companies because of how um, much of a cost to do, you know, these, you know, decade long follow-up studies, uh, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Not only is it costly in terms of how many subjects you'd have to recruit and how long it would take, but also there's an issue about patent protection as well. So normally yeah. your patents, you get patent protection on a new drug for 20 years and th that time starts ticking the minute you file the patent application. So, or the minute the patent is, is approved, but then the research has to start. Right. So all of your incentives are directed towards short uh, right. research. Front end benefit over a short period of time, show this, show the studies are beneficial, get it through the FDA and start uh, selling the drug basically at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, playing off that, that topic of patents, and know that towards the end of your book, you talked about patents in the medical industry and how they can prevent good research a lot of times. And one of the things that stuck out to me was when you said you listed a, a, a short list of all the major medical innovations of the past hundred years. And you pointed out that the majority of these items on this list, things like x-rays and penicillin, um, don't have patents. They were never patented or the owners of the intellectual property never patent them. Um, do, you do you think that by removing or disengaging patents from medical research that that would lead to an improvement in the treatments that we get? Or do you think that it's kind of a moot point because anything that's important isn't going to be patented anyways? It's a really tough question. Um, and on, on this question, um, uh, my own view is I want to be modest about speaking about this question. It's, some of my colleagues are willing to give more kind of bold and radical answers to this question. Um, so I, it is true that when you look at the history of science and the history of medicine, many scientific, most scientific breakthroughs occurred in contexts in which there was no question about intellectual property. All of the Newtons and Darwins and Einsteins, that, those breakthroughs had nothing to do with intellectual property. In medicine, arguably that's also true. So some of the big, big examples that we've been speaking about, magic bullets, insulin, penicillin, um, these occurred in the absence of any incentive about uh, patent protection. Um, what some critics of medicine note is that the current financial incentives for medical research create a perverse situation in which companies are incentivized to pursue interventions which are in fact not all that useful. So I can give one concrete example of this, new antibiotics. So I've been, I've been saying over and over again that antibiotics are the kinds of things for which we can expect to be magic bullets. They're the ideal medical intervention. But because of, for a few reasons, one being the development of resistance. So bacterial, bacteria develop resistance to antibiotics. Um, and so when a new antibiotic is, is released, it tends to be used very selectively. It's a kind of last ditch effort to help a patient um, in part because we don't want to generate resistance to this new antibiotic. Also antibiotics just in virtue of how they work tend to be prescribed only for two or three weeks um, or maybe one week or five days. Whereas a lot of 
drugs for chronic illnesses like depression or blood pressure are the kinds of drugs that a company can sell a patient for the rest of that patient's life. Um, so for these kinds of reasons, companies are disincentivized from pursuing new antibiotics, even though we have good reasons to think antibiotics are like the very best kinds of interventions that we have at our disposal. Um, there's another phenomenon, which is sometimes called Me Too drugs. So the idea is that if some company develops a, a new blockbuster drug um, and they make a lot of money selling this drug, then other companies notice that and they say, well, we wanna make a drug like that, uh, me too. Um, and so they develop a second version of the drug and then another company develops a third version of the drug and so on. And before you know it, you've got say, say antidepressants for which there's you know, 20 different kinds of antidepressants. Um, and so, so meet this me too phenomenon um, means that for some diseases, there are many different kinds of interventions available, and yet there are other diseases for which we have no good drugs available. And so these are these phenomena arise because of the financial incentives created by intellectual property in, in medical research. Now, what's the answer to all of that? That's a huge, difficult question. Some of my colleagues argue that the answer is just to get rid of intellectual property. Some of my colleagues in, medicine, in medical research. Some argue that we should just socialize all of medical research. Um, some people say, okay, that's too radical. Let's think of intellectual property as a kind of lever that we can pull on. So right now we're granting patent protection for 20 years. Let's just pull it back to 15 and see what happens. Pull it back to 10 and see what happens. So there are different proposals that are out there. Um, but I think when thinking about such grand proposals, we have to recognize that we're really in the realm of speculation. <laughs> um, and so I personally, I, I want to be modest about those kinds of policy policy implications. Although I, although I am pretty convinced by the problems that arise via the financial incentives created by intellectual property and medical research. Great. Thank you. Tying, tying off of that, uh, you've talked in the book, about publication bias. And again, one of the things in the book that I was reading where I thought, that can't be true. Like there's no way that you can hide bad research from, from things that are going forward. Talk, talk a little bit about publication bias uh, as it pertains to the FDA approval process in particular. And um, if you could in that answer, uh, I know I'm, I'm, I'm packing a lot in, but if you could in that answer, talk about some of the ways that people can um, let's say cleverly assess their data, their uh, data pools in ways that might not be sound uh, in terms of uh, probability and statistics. Okay. So, so in short, publication bias is the publishing of results that are favorable to a company's intervention and withholding the results that are unfavorable to a company's intervention. Um, and that creates a situation in which if you just look at the published record, if you do a meta-analysis on the published trials, you'll have access to the favorable evidence but not access to the unfavorable evidence and that's clearly a bias. Um, now, sometimes because regulators like the FDA and the EMA, they can get access to more data than just the published data. Um, so, so they, are able to get a clearer view about the benefits and harms of an intervention than say some scientist who wants to do a meta-analysis on 
um, a drug. But there have been um, pretty troubling incidents in which the FDA just makes decisions about regulatory approval without taking into account the full set of data that's available to them. Now, I mean, there, there's a lot packed in your question, so I'm not sure if I'm if I'm getting at sure. getting at all. No, all, and that's that's uh, withholding favorable results, uh, or rather unfavorable results, uh, was to me very shocking. And it, one of the things you talk about is this idea of of registering trials. Maybe if you could kind of explain how that ties into publication bias. Uh, with, with regards to uh, drug approval and getting all the information out into the public for them to make an assessment. Good, right. So one, one proposed solution to publication bias, which has occurred to many people, is to require the registration of trials before they start happening. So, so suppose you're a journal. You say, right, if you want to publish the results of your, tr of your trial in our journal, first you have to register that this trial is occurring in the first place. And that way, meta-analysts can look at the registry of trials and then look at what gets published. And if there's a discrepancy, that will be like a clue to the meta-analysts meta that there's publication bias going on. So journal, uh, medical journals have said that they're going to require pre-registration of trials. And this involves many fine-grained details, like for instance, to pre-register not just that the trial is taking place, but what outcome measures are going to be measured in the trial. Because another form of publication bias isn't just withholding all the data um, absolutely, but selectively um, reporting some of the data. So suppose I was going to measure, does this drug minimize the frequency of heart attacks? I can measure the frequency of heart attacks, but I can also measure whether or not the drug lowers blood pressure. And I might find in the trial that actually there's no effect on, on heart attacks, but there's a small decrease in blood pressure. So let's publish that. So trial, trial registry is meant to mitigate these kinds of problems. One thing that some scientists have observed, so in the last say 20 or 25 years, trial registry has become more frequent. And now we can start to use trial registries to actually assess the extent to which publication bias is occurring. So here's one study that I really like. These regulators in Germany, they took all of the interventions that had been submitted to them for approval in a one-year period, and they went back to the trial registries, and they just counted the number of outcomes that had been measured, that had been planned to be measured in all of these trials. And then they went to the published record, and they just counted the number of outcomes that had data. And the publication rate of these outcomes was around 23%. So, so that gives us an indication that actually there's really a lot of publication bias going on. Um, yeah. Um, I, okay, I have a question. Um, and I understand that this is kind of relates things to more current events. And I can understand it that there's some parts of it you don't want to answer. That's totally okay. But one thing that came to my mind while reading this was uh, well, especially as you talked about certain antiviral medications um, not meeting the necessary rigor that they need to to be considered valid. Uh, what, what do you? Th what, what's your take, or what's what's a good system to look at some of the current events with some of these antivirals that are being discussed, such as 
remdesivir, um, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, even vitamin D, and the positive and or negative impacts on coronavirus. Um, maybe you can help me help me break that down in my mind a little bit and understand that better. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for this question. I mean, of course, as you can imagine, in the last year, like you know, two years ago, I finished writing this. I published this book, and then right. last year we had this terrible um, like pandemic. And so, Jacob, thinking, where are you behind it? Is this all just for your book? Just tell us right now. We're not gonna, <laughs> we, we won't hold it against you. everybody. Again, go on by the book. Medical nihilism. Jacob Sagan. Uh, it's 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 okay. Everybody has to. Eat. Go ahead. No. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't do this. <laughs> So I have been asking myself, and I'm starting to, and I'm, I'm giving lectures on this topic. So, 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 so the question is, what should a medical nihilist say about the pandemic in general and about yeah. um, this particular case, antiviral medications and vaccines and so on? And I think here's the really, really short story. Infectious diseases do tend to be the kinds of things that we can target well. So I've been using this example of antibiotics for bacterial infections a lot. Viruses, of course, aren't bacteria. So targeting viruses is a little trickier. We also have some success in developing uh, vaccines for viruses, viral infections, including respiratory viruses, especially the flu. What we're not so good at is developing pharmaceutical interventions to mitigate the symptoms or target the causes of viral infections. So think about uh, like oseltamivir for influenza. And this was scandalous a few years ago. And then when we had all the, all the best evidence available to us, we can conclude that oseltamivir basically does very little for influenza. So when we step back and we think, okay, here's this new respiratory virus, which is causing us trouble. What can we predict about successful pharmaceuticals or successful vaccines? If we were to ask this question, say one year ago, a reasonable thing to, thing to say would be, we're gonna have not much success with pharmaceuticals, but we might have some success with vaccines. And arguably that's what the last year has showed us. So all of the, all of the trials on pharmaceutical interventions for COVID have been pretty disappointing. I mean, there's been just a string of failures, of course, like hydro hydroxychloroquine, but even the, even the putative um, beneficial interventions have been beneficial only for very, very select groups of patients, like patients who required ventilation and were hospitalized, um, which is you know, a small fraction of the number of um, COVID patients. Um, so, and remdesivir, you know, that was a failure. Um, and these are also trials, it should be noted that these are trials that are also open label. So like the very best trials that were testing remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine um, have been open label trials. So patients and physicians know what intervention they're getting and that creates expectation biases and confirmation bias, placebo effect. Um, but even if we put those methodological worries aside and we just accept the evidence as true, um, the results have been on pharmaceutical interventions for COVID, the results have been largely disappointing. Um, but the vaccines have been impressive. And the, the entire generation of like the development of the vaccines, the testing of the vaccines, rolling out the vaccines 
has been, um, in my mind, much more impressive than pharmaceutical interventions. Um, so to, if I can just recap for my own understanding, you're saying that vaccines have more of a proven mechanism of uh, efficiency or of working as opposed to some of these treatments. Um, I know one that this particular vaccine, I know that they, they skipped a large portion of the FDA approvals. Um, does that bring any concerns up from, from what you can see or does it seem pretty straightforward? Yeah, yeah. So these kinds of concerns have been raised for vaccines around the world. So, you know, a lot of Western critics were criticizing the Russian Sputnik vaccine for being hurried. Um, and then th the same occurred in Europe and America. And of course, this is, this ought to be a concern, of course. Um, we wanna make an inference that these vaccines are safe and effective. Um, now, as, as you know, one of the arguments that I raised in the book is that in general, standards for regulatory approval by the FDA and the EMA are too low and they ought to be higher. Now, one caveat to that kind of argument though, is that how high or low regulatory standards should be should also take into account the broader social context and how harmful the, the kind of intervention is that we're dealing with. So for instance, like the, I think HIV is a good example where in the 1980s, there was just, there was no drug for HIV. People were dying really quickly. And what activists said to the FDA was, you need to hurry up. You need to speed this process up because we're dying and we don't have any other option. Um, and so, and the FDA did speed things up. Now, so there's a situation in which there's a disease which is killing people. There's no intervention that's available for them. And so arguably, we, we, it was right to lower the standards for regulatory approval because you know, to, to keep the standards high would entail just denying treatments, even if those treatments weren't, weren't any good, but denying treatments to people with a lethal disease. I think a similar kind of argument can be made about the COVID vaccine, although it would have to, you know, it, this would have to be treated carefully, but just given how serious the pandemic was, um, rolling out a vaccine that um, wasn't meeting evidentiary standards that we think in general ought to be um, upheld might be okay. Especially because vaccines, again, are the kinds of things that um, we have so much experience with and so much experience being safe and effective. So, so in my mind, yeah, a case can be made that um, speeding things up there was okay. Great, thank you. Let me let me build off of that real quick. And so if I understand your argument and in terms of that master argument equation, and in the case of vaccines, you would expect the prior probability that pH term to be higher than you would for a pharmaceutical intervention. Um, now that would be the algebra and you just gave the explanation behind, behind the algebra. Um, one of the things that uh, struck me in the book were these different ways of, of actually measuring success. You were just talking about, you know, how we measure success for these, these different interventions. Talk a little bit, this, this might be kind of a specific question, but I, I think we'll have a few listeners that are currently medical students and, are, and or are doctors. Um, talk a little bit about risk ratio versus risk difference and why, as you argue in the book, risk difference ought to be the metric that physicians look at and, and researchers more broadly are looking at for 
identifying a good intervention. Yeah, thanks. This is a, uh, as you say, this is a technical question, but but it is, I think, important. Um, so there are basically two families of outcome measures that we can use to measure the effectiveness of intervention, relative measures and absolute measures. So an example of an absolute measure is risk difference. Uh, another example of number needed to treat. An example of relative measures are, as you say, uh, uh, relative risk reduction or risk ratio. Um, now, as a matter of fact, the vast majority of trials, when they're published, they use only relative measures. Now, there are both logical and psychological arguments to conclude that we should only be using absolute measures. So absolute measures get us closer to the truth than relative measures do. With some interventions, especially when the outcome in question is rare, like will this drug lower the risk of a heart attack? And the probability of a heart attack in this particular population is say one in 200. When the risk of an outcome is rare, relative measures of the effectiveness of an intervention tend to be really high. Like this drug lowers the risk of heart attack by say 30%. When the absolute measure is really low, the risk of heart attack goes from maybe one in 200 to one in 300, which is a very small difference. Um, we have these psychological experiments that show that physicians are more willing to prescribe drugs when they're given relative measures. When the same data is analyzed according to absolute measures, physicians are much less willing to prescribe drugs. And it's the same with um, patients' willingness to consume drugs. If you give a patient a relative measure, they'll say, yes, give me the drug. If you give a patient the absolute measure, they'll be like, mm, I'm not sure I want this statin actually. Um, so in short, absolute measures are less biased. They get us closer to the truth. Um, they tend to show that drugs are much more modest than, than relative measures do. But unfortunately in medical research, publishing practice is to exaggerate with relative measures. And if I could just kind of verbally give our audience a numerical example to explain this, and you tell me if I have it right or I have it wrong. Uh, I'm going to be using a, a temperature kind of example, but in a I'll be using an absolute temperature scale for anybody listening, but uh, but basically, you know, if it were uh, one degree outside and the next day were two degrees outside, somebody could either tell you it was twice as warm or they could tell you that it was two degrees versus one degrees. Both are really cold, but if somebody tells you that it's twice as warm, you might get the wrong impression that it's actually warm outside when in fact it's still really cold. Is that is that kind of the way to think about relative versus uh, absolute measurement? That's exactly right. I, I really like that example, actually. It's helpful. And as a matter of fact, those numbers are really close to what a lot of drugs look like. So in some populations, statins lower the risk of heart attack from, say, 2% to 1%. And so they lower your risk by 50%. <laughs> um, yeah. Very good. Very good. I'll, I'll pass it over to, to Jeff. So I would like to switch gears a little bit. Um, but before we do so, um, Jim, would you like to introduce our album of the week? Yes. Sale. Yes. Very good. Very good. So I think the, the next things that we want to be talking about um, are going to be a little bit on uh, the, the conclusion that, uh, that Jacob reaches, which is this idea of gentle medicine and how we can actually progress 
and our medical interventions towards gentle medicine. And I also want to have a, a bit of a broader discussion tying into some authors that we frequently talk about on the show, people like Nassim Taleb, people like Peter Thiel, Eric Weinstein, uh, et cetera. But before doing that, in keeping with our roses and rhetoric tradition, we are going to be talking about our album of the week. We do have a write-up from our official r and uh, correspondent for this. So the album of the week is going to be, and I have it right here, give me one second is going to be from Miles Davis. And I actually don't have the name of the album, Joe. Could you help me out here with our write-up? Yeah, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the review and state the album. So the album is Kind of Blue and it's by Miles Davis. So how does something become universally accepted as a classic? To be frank, I don't know. However, in today's divided world, there are certain things that are loved by everyone. That brings us to this week's album, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Released in 1959, Kind of Blue went on to become the greatest jazz album of all time, selling over 5 million copies worldwide. It, it is cliche, but even for listeners who claim to not like jazz, they do like Kind of Blue. Q-Tip said it best when describing the influence and appeal of the album. It's like the Bible. You just have one in your house. Kind of Blue features the absolute giants of the jazz world, with Miles on trumpet, Coltrane on tenor sax, Cannonball Alderley on the alto sax, Bill Evans and Whiten Kelly on piano, Jimmy Cobb on drums, and rounding it out with Paul Chambers on bass. Stylistically, Kind of Blue is revolutionary for breaking away from the bebop style of the 1940s and 1950s and transitioning to the use of musical modes. More simply put, Instead of being fast and rhythmic, the emphasis is on the melody. This shift makes Kind of Blue slower and much easier for the listener to sit back and enjoy. Sonically, Kind of Blue is soothing, romantic, and sometimes melancholy, but never overly gloomy. Overall, it is just so deeply cool without being coerced, which only reinforces how damn cool the whole thing is. Miles' solo on the track Freddy Freeloader is deceptively simple yet completely mesmerizing. Then there's Coltrane's solo on Blue and Green, which is just so tender and haunting. Even if you have never sat down and can consciously listen to Kind of Blue, you have most certainly heard it while out and about. Tracks on this album can be heard everywhere, which again fortifies just how beloved the album is. If you've eaten at a restaurant with a decent wine list, they have used Kind of Blue to set the mood. The track All Blues was featured on the wine and on the wire and blue and green was used in Mad Men. I once went to a skate shop to buy some sneakers and so what came on. I said something to the cashier about it and his response was, Miles just really is the greatest way to start the day. Granted, this was at 3 p.m., but it was still dope. Once you know what to listen for, you will be amazed at the strange places where Kind of Blue can be heard. For the best listening experience, my recommendation is just a great set of headphones. Kind of Blue is worthy of the best audio equipment you have. So, so uh, I, I'd like to open the floor to Jacob. Um, are, you a, are you a big music fan, a big Miles Davis fan? I am both a music fan and a Miles Davis fan, and this is one of my favorite albums, so good choice. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you agree with that assessment? 
I never would have found the words like this reviewer found for describing that album. Yeah, I know. We, we, we have an incredible music correspondent that, that works with us. Best in the business, Joe. I, Joe, I would say best in the business. I mean, that would be, that'd be my no take. No doubt. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was really good. I, uh, I I made a Miles Davis station, or just kind of like a, a jazz station on my Pandora, maybe like six months ago during COVID. I was like sitting around, and I was like, I'm gonna give this a shot, and um, it's uh, never a mistake. It's always fun. It's always a good good listen. So go out there, download the album, um, and we'll put all the links in uh, the, the the video below. And we're happy to know it's a happy coincidence that uh, Jacob's also a fan as well. So that was. Uh, Stars are aligning, my friends. Stars are aligning. Um, let's take a little bit of time and uh, let's let, let's talk about. I want to give uh, Jacob a chance to talk about kind of his his uh, prog- or rather his his solution, which is this framework of gentle medicine. Jacob, I'm going to invite you just to give kind of a, a very broad um, idea behind gentle medicine, and then we'll kind of go into a few of the details. And then the last segment, like I said, we'll try to connect some of your ideas to some favorite authors of the show. Okay, so yeah, gentle medicine was just this idea that I introduced in the very last chapter of the book. It was a kind of like, right, I've given all these critical arguments, now what? And to answer that question, I raised a few different kinds of issues. So if medical nihilism is a convincing thesis, then this suggests changes to various aspects of medicine and medical research and regulation. So the first is obviously clinical practice. So if we're, if we're gonna be dubious about many medical interventions, then clearly we should be prescribing less and we should be consuming less. Now, gentle medicine isn't this like simple-minded view that just physicians should just take their patients off drugs or patients should just like throw their you know, pharmaceuticals in the toilet or anything like that. Your listeners are, on you know, five really important drugs. They were just doing saying, that right now. As, as you were talking, yeah. they're like, oh, wait, oh, oh, shit. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, we have this, we have really a mountain of evidence on what it's like to go on a drug. That's what all these trials are about. So we, you know, give a patient a new drug and see how they do. But we have very little systematic, careful evidence on what it's like to take people off drugs. There are some experiments that do this carefully and systematically, and the results are really interesting, um, but we need a lot more of that. Yeah. So we need, and not just kind of um, a collection of random cases, like these physicians have noticed that when they take this drug off, you know, this, off this kind of patient, they observe blah, 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 but like carefully controlled trials. Um, so we need good experiments that test what it's like to systematically take patients off drugs. But anyways, in short, clinical research, clinical practice should be less interventionist. So that's like one strand of gentle medicine. And that informs um, an aspect of research. So it's not just about clinical practice, but it's also clinical research. So clinical research should be studying different kinds of things, including drug discontinuation, but also other sorts of questions. For instance, one of the arguments in the middle part of the book is that when we ask the question, what are the major causes of improvements in health, of increases in lifespan? Um, the best answers are social interventions, like um, better hygiene, um, better access to nutrition among most people, 
um, things like that. And so if that's true about improvements in health in general, then we should be systematically studying those kinds of things. Um, so for instance, what are the best ways to treat depression? There are thousands of trials that test drugs and a very small handful of trials that test these kinds of lifestyle interventions. So gentle medicine is a suggest suggestion that we should be you know, broadening the range of kinds of questions that medical research asks. And then there is this issue about uh, regulation that we were speaking about earlier and intellectual property. So and on, on that question, as I noted earlier, I don't you know, have a very, very decisive view about what we should do about the kind of legal and regulatory context of medical research, but, but it's a kind of coda in the book that we ought to be um, thinking about those questions more carefully than we currently are. Very good. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of a unrelated question, but uh, well, I guess it is somewhat related because you do talk about antidepressants and mental health and whatnot in your book. Um, and I, I'm interested in relating the mental health aspect of things to the philosophy aspect of things, because I think philosophy is, philosophy is a very um, captivating subject matter, and it's something that I enjoy reading. And I, I was curious for yourself, um, maybe who some of your favorite philosophers might have been, and if, if you get some sort of peace, mental peace, or clarity from, from reading philosophy, or what draws you in. Sorry, I don't mean to pack too much in there. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. Um, so I think for many people, philosophy is uh, a process of self-discovery and it helps people think through practical problems in life. I mean, philosophy was meant to be that for the ancients, you know, for, for Plato, for Aristotle. Um, philosophy was uh, a practical endeavor in a, just as much as it was an intellectual endeavor. And um, I'm not sure if it personally brings me all that much peace. I mean, it usually <laughs> keeps me up at night. Um, okay, the book, Medical Nihilism by Jake <laughs> Yeah, but, but it does motivate the kinds of questions that I, that I choose to ask in my own work. So, and, and you know, medical nihilism is, is the result of one such line of questioning. So, so in my own work, I mean, so philosophy, a lot of philosophy, one of the things that makes philosophy really exciting, at least in contemporary philosophy, is just how rigorous and careful the scholarly work is. Um, so professional philosophy at its best is crystal clear in its logic and its rigor. So that's one aspect of philosophy. Sometimes though, that crystal clear rigor can lose sight of problems that really matter to people. Other traditions in philosophy grapple with problems that really matter to people, but those traditions tend to lose sight of the crystal clear logic and rigor. And so one big ambition in my career in general is to keep those strands of philosophy together. So to be grappling with problems that really matter to people, um, but doing so in a way which brings that kind of crystal clear logical approach. Um, and so I don't know if it brings me personally any you know kind of I'm not, I'm not getting any closer to nirvana myself but but i hope that um you know through my work i can help at least um do you do you read eastern philosophy at all or 
or is most of your experience with Western? Only, yeah, most of my experiences with Western philosophy, although I kind of have a passing amateurish appreciation with, with some Eastern philosophy, yeah. Great, thank you. Yeah. Jacob, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, well, maybe a couple, but not, not too many, but I, I want to I say, uh, building off of Joe's question, that there was uh, a point uh, in terms of treating depression that kind of one lifestyle intervention that I think you talked about was this idea of giving people a sense of uh, control or, or, or something over their lives and that uh, that, that played an, an important uh, role in improving mental health. And you, you tie that into, into a a, a social conversation in terms of intervention. I just wanted to give you a chance to touch on that a little bit uh, before moving on to other questions. Right, okay, so I think what you're referring to here is this important work by this medical scientist and epidemiologist, Michael Marmot. So he spent his career studying the influence of one's social status on one's health outcomes. Yeah. So he did all these different kinds of um, studies and experiments in which he was trying to get at this question, the relationship between status and health outcome. Now, in some sense, there's an obvious connection between status and health outcome because like the higher social status you have, the more money you have. And with that money, you can you know, buy more nutritious food and get access to better healthcare and so on. But his important point is that even once you control for those obvious factors like education and income and so on, it's still the case that one's place in society modulates one's health outcomes. And his story is that that causal relationship operates via a sense of control over one's life. So higher ranking people in society tend to have greater control over their lives. You know, we see that for instance, in during the COVID lockdown where um, white collar workers and professors like me, we can just like stay in our living room. We can do what we want with our lives basically. You know, I can right. work in pajamas and wake up when I want. But, you know, if you're like a, you know, blue collar worker, if you're like, you know, um, say a police officer or a janitor, you know, you have to show up at work. You don't have any control, even if there's a pandemic. Um, and so this epidemiologist story is that that sense of control over one's life can improve one's health outcomes um, and including psychiatric health outcomes, but also just very core medical outcomes like the frequency of heart attacks, for instance. Um, so Jacob, when you talk about some of these considerations when taking before using medical interventions, um, I'm curious how how educated you think that the doctors them are the, the doctors themselves that are prescribing these medications are. How educated are they on you know maybe some of the risks or fallacies of the study? Um, because it seems like I think like you said in in your book that the number three cause of deaths in the U.S. today is by hospitals. So how, I don't know if you, I don't know what you can do with that. Just talk about what doctors, how much trust I should be putting in a doctor when he prescribes me something. Yeah, yeah. Just to, as a kind of prior note, I mean, one thing that I tried to do in the book is to exactly not put the responsibility on physicians, like the responsibility for some of the problems that I talk about in the book. Um, so I really do think that these problems are more systemic, bigger picture issues about research and regulation. And when we think about how should we respond to these problems, I, I really don't think that the response should be, well, physicians should be better at their work or physicians should get better education or physicians should be better at reasoning statistically. Um, now, I think that all those things would be great, <laughs> um, but I think that that kind of um, 
places the responsibility uh, in a place which is inappropriate to essentially. Now, it is though, just to get directly at your question though, um, we have a lot of empirical reasons to think that most physicians um, aren't good at thinking carefully about the problems that I raise in this book. Now, one thing that's been interesting to me is that most of the readers of this book and a lot of people in audiences when I give lectures are physicians. And those physicians tend to be in total agreement with the argument I'm giving the book. That's been something that's been really surprising to me in the last couple of years. But then I started to think most of the readers of the book and people who are in audiences of lectures that I'm giving are a pretty select group of people. Um, these, are, these are physicians in you know, London and Boston and so on. And they're not your average treating physician in a clinic somewhere you know, in the middle of Idaho. Um, so busy physicians, you know, they go through medical school, they're working really hard, um, they learn a lot, um, they're under a lot of pressure, time pressure, and then they start working and they're trained to do particular kinds of things, but they're trained extremely rigorously so that there's huge time demands on them, but they're not trained to um, think as carefully as one would hope about the shortcomings of medical research and pharmaceuticals. I think that that's really a nice uh, point to jump off to and to connect to uh, a favorite author of the show, Nassim Taleb. Uh, so, you know, probably the book that we talk about the most uh, from him on this on this show is his book, Anti-Fragile. Uh, kind of the, the, the big picture view of anti-fragile is that uh, anti-fragile systems are systems that actually improve when they come in contact with stressors and in particular random stressors. Um, and those examples he gives in the book, contrast that with something that is robust, which is something that stays the same when it encounters stressors. And then the last would be uh, a thing that is fragile, which when it encounters a stressor uh, falls apart. And one of, one of the, the, the key things that, that leads to either fragility or anti-fragility is this notion of nonlinear response. And in, in particular, uh, the scene works a lot to give people an idea that a lot of things in life are nonlinear. And of course, one of those things would be the human body. And it, what, what people have a hard time understanding is, you know, uh, if your body only changes by a couple of degrees, you might get some nonlinear response, even though you're only a little bit warmer. Um, and there are other examples of that in the book as well. Could you talk a little bit, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but maybe tying in some of that concern about nonlinear responses to uh, kind of your example earlier about cascades and about side effects, et cetera, that occur within the body. Yeah, okay, thanks. So. Um, so I don't know much about work, although uh, in advance of, of our discussion, I did read a little bit about this notion of anti-fragility and it struck me as pretty interesting. So one, one thing that I thought could be applicable to medicine is this idea of these external stressors improving the outcomes of a system rather than harming the outcomes of the system, at least if the you know, external stressors are of the right intensity or right form. So I guess sometimes we hear, for instance, about our immune system working this way. So, you know, some people say, 
um, you shouldn't be so fussy about your children, like eating dirt and stuff like this, because um, that process is going to help build up their immune system. And if you protect them too much, then you're going to be, you know, mitigating their immune system. Now, I don't know how true any of that is. And I don't know how, you know, reliable that, if I don't even know if that's a thing that's studied very scientifically or not, but it strikes me as interesting and worthy of, of knowing about and consistent with this idea of anti fragility. Um, you know, on the, Let's just jump in real quick, and because uh, I, I know one thing you mentioned in the book too was this example of a drug trial where they gave an extremely small dose. It was like just after an animal trial, and the patients that received the drug almost immediately went into organ failure. And uh, even though it was a very, very, very small, you know, maybe that would be a good example of nonlinear. You know, in in, in the terms of tiny, tiny, tiny intervention, dramatic uh, physiological response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right, the, the, the example that you're thinking of, it's, it was, this was a small phase one trial where yeah. it was just intended to test the safety of this particular intervention and all of the subjects in this phase one trial suffered these massively harmful consequences. Um, and right, and the dose that was given to them was much smaller than, than was in the um, previous animal trials. Um, now, I'm not sure if that's, isn't, that seems to me an example of fragility rather than correct. Yes, fragility. yes, yes. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and more yeah. just even broadly, the idea of nonlinearity that you know one idea that if, if uh, were were more broadly thought about in the medical community would be this idea of nonlinearity uh, in in terms of understanding risk reward trade offs. That even a, a, a little bit of change in potency, or a little bit, it could just have you know cascading effects, et cetera, and all that kind of arises from complexities that you talk about in the book, namely the one-to-many relationship that goes in multiple levels between ligand to uh, response in the, in, in, uh, the body. And then, but I want Joe, it's not like you had, maybe I had a follow-up question. I want to give you a chance to follow up as well. Uh, no, no follow-up, but I, I did have a, a question on the next topic, if, unless you had something else, Jim. Go ahead. Um, so in your book, you mentioned a certain individual by the name of Karl Popper. And Karl Popper is interesting to me because I have just recently been hearing his name more and more in my life for some reason. Um, I think a lot of it's from authors like David Deutsch or people like that. And you mentioned the, the falsification principle, which was posed by Karl Popper. Um, could you give, describe what that is and maybe just the significance of Karl Popper as a, as a figure? Sure. So Popper is probably one of the most important philosophers of science in the 20th century and, and the philosopher of science who most scientists know of. If you ask a scientist, um, uh, what do you think about philosophy of science? They'll say, well, Popper was great. Um, and they, they take themselves to be Popperian. They take themselves to be applying his principle of falsificationism. So this principle says that good science, rigorous science um, proposes hypotheses and then sets out to attempt to refute those hypotheses. So rather than look for evidence that confirms the hypothesis, which Popper said, it's always just too easy to do that. Um, we should be setting out to severely test these hypotheses by rigorously subjecting them to experimental scrutiny um, in an attempt to falsify them. And then the hypotheses that survive that rigorous process um, are the ones that we should sort of tentatively adopt. 
Um, would you say that he was influential in some of your work? So Popper, yeah, I mean, Popper has been influential in philosophy of science in general. And um, that idea of rigor in science is crucially important. And I mean, one of the, I guess one way you could say some of the problems in medical research are occurring is because um, medical science is not being Popperian enough. Um, medical science is not trying to be strict in its testing. So that, yeah, I think that has been influential on my thinking. Now, as a kind of side note, um, philosophers of science since Popper have noted a bunch of shortcomings in his philosophy of science. Um, so it's a kind of incomplete philosophy of science. But if we kind of abstract away from, from those argumentative details, I think what a lot of philosophers of science would agree to today is that the spirit of Popper is right. So uh, science does have to have this aspect of rigor and self-scrutiny to it. And it's exactly that that seems to have gone wrong in a lot of medical research today. Okay, great, thanks. I like uh, the example that uh, Karl Popper gives is the idea of a black swan, which is also another uh, famous uh, Taleb book, but just kind of outline that for the audience. The idea with uh, the black swan is that no matter how many times you observe, you know, white swans in the environment, you can never conclude that black swans don't exist because as would happen in real life, they stumbled upon a black swan and all of a sudden they had to re revise how they considered, um, you know, colors of, of, of swans. Um, and I, I like that example uh, because it seems to, to, to tie really well into um, an idea earlier, which was this hollow hunt for harms. And in particular, the fact that it can take a long time to observe harms. And so uh, you, you give examples in the book of drugs that were approved because they showed benefit. But then many years later, it turned out that, in fact, these drugs had you know, horrible side effects and many of them were taken from market. I, I think that served as, as, as kind of a not quite a, a black swan, maybe in the Taleb definition of the word. I don't know how rare that would be. You might argue that it's actually not that rare at all, but it is a good example of um, this idea that if we only look at short-term success, we can set ourselves up for long-term failure by virtue of being fragile to these different outcomes, to the idea that this medicine that's now in wide distribution um, has this harmful, uh, you use the term harm profile that was skewed more towards uh, negative versus positive side effects. Um, I wanted to tie that idea in with, with kind of this, the the last idea I wanted to discuss with you from Nassim Taleb, which is this idea of via negativa, which is the idea that when we're trying to improve a complex system, we ought to begin with the removing of the unnatural. And that this, this is for many reasons, but you know, basically if you're uh, the kind of the uh, uh, classic example would be the idea of smoking cigarettes and lung cancer. But even before we had evidence that smoking pods lung cancer, it still would have been a good idea to not smoke because we're not really evolve to inhale tobacco smoke into our lung. So it would have been a good thing to avoid. Um, I wanted to give you some, some time to kind of play, with, play around with that idea, that idea of via negativa, removing the unnatural. And I know you talk in general medicine, the idea of trying to study uh, removing medications from patients to see how they respond after doing so. Okay, yeah, so interesting idea. Let me bounce off this first point about swans first, swans and hollow hunt for harm. So sure. I'll, spice up, I'll spice up your example there a little bit. So, so suppose you know, we've got this hypothesis, um, all swans are white. 
And then we go out looking for evidence for that. So we see this white swan, we see that white swan. So we start confirming our hypothesis. And then we see a black swan. And somebody says, oh, look, there's a black swan. So your hypothesis is false. And I say, that's not, a, that's not evidence against my hypothesis because that's not a swan, because that's black, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, and so your, your hypothesis, all swans are white, just becomes unfalsifiable, right? You just can't falsify it with evidence because of the, and that's in fact how a lot of the hunt for harms of medical interventions goes because the trials use, for instance, measuring devices that are insensitive to detecting real harms. Um, I give a lot of examples of this in the book. So, so the hollow hunt for harms in many contexts looks exactly like um, confirming your hypothesis that all swans are white because you don't allow black swans to even exist. Right. Um, yeah. Now on via negativa, it's, this is an interesting idea. Um, one thing to be cautious about here is the assumption that the unnatural is bad or the natural is good, right? right. So right. you're wearing glasses, I'm wearing contact lenses. Arguably these are unnatural. Right. Um, communicating over Zoom, arguably that's unnatural. Um, <laughs> And so I, I'm a little bit cautious with, with the general idea that you know, if we're thinking about people's health, one of the first things we should do is you know, start getting rid of the um, unnatural. Although in the context of pharmaceuticals, I think this is a pretty compelling thing to think for, for many people. So just to give one very, very practical example, for a while when I was writing this book, I was shadowing a psychiatrist in his practice um, just to get a feel for, you know, I didn't want to just be a philosopher in the ivory tower. I wanted to get a feel for real uh, medical work. And this clinical practice was in a very like intensive psychiatric ward. So we, we were seeing patients who were the most kind of extreme psychiatric patients. And this psychiatrist said to me something very interesting. He said, he conceived of his job as once a patient comes in and under his care, how many drugs can he get the patient off? He's got the patients while keeping them healthy and keeping the community healthy. So these patients are coming in on a range of recreational drugs and a range of pharmaceutical drugs. And his working theory was that this was a big part of the problem. Um, and so, but he also knew that he couldn't just take them off all their drugs because that would be harmful for them and for others. But he would play around with seeing how many he could get them off while keeping everybody healthy or safe. Um, and so that was in some sense, an idea of this via negativa. Um, yeah. I mean, thinking off on, on my feet here. No, of course. And I, and I'll, you know, to, to, uh, Nassim's credit, I mean, he does, you know, kind of give some good examples of this and, uh, you know, certainly it's like, kind of like what you were saying. The, 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 uh, solution is not for everybody to go into your cabinet, take all your medicine, throw it all away. You know, that's not the argument. And, um, and I, I do want to say, I wanted to get back to the real quickly, uh, enjoy, I want to talk about Scott Adams just for a moment, because I think uh, Jacob gave us a good example of word think where, you know, it's like, we just always change the, the definition or we argue with the definition rather than focusing on the actual objective of is the bird black or not? <laughs> it's like, well, no, it's not a swan. It's like, that, that would be a good example of word think, which is uh, mm. another book we talk about a lot, which is this, uh, the book of, of loser think, which is basically just way to, ways that people engage in unproductive conversation. It's, you know, every, it's, it's the swan black or white. Well, it's not really a swan if it's black. So it's, 
okay, now you're doing work thinking, you know, you're probably not being productive. So I thought that was a nice tie in there uh, from, from, uh, from Jacob. Yeah, excellent tie-ins. Um, Jacob, we talked a little bit about some of the major influential medical breakthroughs of the past hundred years. Uh, do you have any insights or any guesses as to what some breakthroughs over the next hundred years might look like? Oh, hard question. You're asking me uh, to. You might have to pull out your crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what some people say about this question is um, uh, something like personalized medicine and or artificial intelligence will contribute to revolutionizing medicine. And as you might imagine, I'm pretty skeptical about both of those. Um, now, I think there's some, you know, personalized medicine has already given us some successes and it will continue to do so. And what would personalized medicine be, just for clarification? Sure, so it means different things to different people, but basically it means learning more about disease pathophysiology and especially at the genetic level or at the biochemical level, and then um, targeting drugs accordingly. So rather than just have one big disease category, like say breast cancer, like give drugs for this disease category, breast cancer, it turns out that there are different kinds of breast cancers. And some of those kinds of breast cancers are more amenable to particular drugs than others. And so we refine patient populations according to what we know about the disease pathophysiology. So that approach has led to some successes in medicine and, and many people say that's just going to totally revolutionize medicine in the future. I think it will continue to help a little bit here and there, but it's not going to revolutionize medicine. And it's not gonna be the magic bullet. It's not gonna be a, yeah, a magic bullet or like a way of generating magic bullets. Yeah, yeah. Now, same with artificial intelligence. Um, I think artificial intelligence is often hyped to be like the next big thing in, in many domains of life, including, including medicine. And I, I'm pretty skeptical about that. Um, if we step back and we ask, what are, the, what are gonna be the big benefits to our health in general in the next hundred years? Actually, I think the answer is gonna be something really simple. It's gonna be the same thing that benefited our health in the last 200 years. Um, access to clean drinking water, um, you know, access to nutrition, washing our hands, and avoiding the next zombie apocalypse, you know, if it's caused by viruses or AI or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I, I really like that. Um, I, I like uh, that this idea of uh, the next hundred years, and I, I, would, I, would, I would think, you know, one of the ways that we could improve medicine over the next hundred years would be to uh, maybe modify the, the coursework or the ideas that we expose people in medical research to. And one of those things would be trying to develop a more rigorous um, statistical and probabilistic foundation for these researchers. What, what's your take on that? And if anyone's listening who is currently involved in medical research or is, is a student, what classes or what ideas would you encourage them to expose themselves to in order to avoid some of the pitfalls you give in your book? Right. Okay. So um, good question. So I think one of the key ones would be a philosophy of medicine class. Um, so philosophy of medicine is a kind of new discipline, but more and more universities are teaching this. Um, in fact, I just placed a, one of my PhD students in a, in a university in America to become their resident philosopher of medicine. Um, so in those kinds of courses, 
um, many of the topics that come up in the book get taught. Like, what is a disease? How should we think about randomized control trials? How should we think statistically? Um, and of course, um, learning about the scientific method in general, either via, and this kind of thing gets taught in different sorts of departments. So sometimes scientific method courses are taught in science departments, like a psychology department. Um, sometimes they're taught in philosophy departments, like a philosophy of science course. Uh, obviously statistics is concerned with scientific method and, and study design. Um, and of course, I think it would be good if average people, patients, physicians um, um, improved their numeracy, improved their thinking numerically and statistically and thinking about study design. Although arguably more important would be setting up a system in which um, decision makers for medicine, like say policymakers or regulators, um, those people need to have these kinds of skills most crucially. Um, and I'm not saying that they don't, many of them do. And a lot of the lessons that I've learned come from right. folks like that. Um, but it's just that the systems aren't structured such that those lessons um, are applied routinely. Well, Jim, I, I don't have any more questions. Um, do you have anything to end on? I, I have a, just, a, just a, a, a few things to end on. I have you know, a, a slightly heavier topic that I want to end on, but kind of before we're getting to that, I wanted to spend just a few minutes to talk about the book itself. And, and, for, and really the, the first part is um, a striking example of buying a book because of the cover. I mean, look, look at that cover art. Now, Jacob, can you tell us where this picture comes from? I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I think you even have the cover art by Trinley Dorget. Uh, this is a striking book cover. And I will tell you, I, I, I don't quite remember how I first came across your book. I think it was, I was on Amazon buying a book from Nassim Pleb and I saw your book in like the recommended reading section. And I saw that picture, I thought, I'm, I'm buying that book. It's, it's over, it's, it's, it's gonna happen. <laughs> That's where that picture comes from. So I'm really glad that the cover had that effect. Uh, you're the first person to say that, so I'm very pleased with that. Um, you know, I, I spent one weekend asking myself, what's the book cover going to be? And so I just went on all these internet rabbit holes looking. Right. Of course. For some reason, it was both, but also, you know, something about medicine, but also something about the way we think about medicine. And I found this one um, artist, Trumay Dorje, who, in fact, is um, a healthcare worker in Toronto. And this, her art is at least at least two or three years ago, her art was a kind of hobby. Um, and she has a website uh, with a really impressive collection of art. And I was just, when I finally found her, I just emailed her and said, "I'm about to publish a book. Um, can we uh, can we use one of your one of your pictures?" And she was she was pleased about it, and we were pleased about it. Excellent, very good. Um, other thing, and this is more of a of a style thing. It's I. I'm going to say, I really, I, I mean this as a compliment. So I want to make that out in the front right away. Um, you use a lot of repetition in your book. Now, I actually like yeah. that because what it, what it gives the reader the ability to do is on a second or third reading, you don't have to read the whole book cover to cover. You can go right to the chapter and you reference over and over again, uh, Tamiflu, you reference all the medicine, you know, all the different examples you give. Every chapter in this book can stand alone because of your use of repetition. Now, I, that is an extremely impressive feat 
because in, in a sense, what you've given is a book that is both a cover to cover read, but also a collection of, you know, essays. And the result is that the book is extremely accessible because you're always reminding the reader, remember this point from chapter one, remember this point from chapter two, and it, you're always, always building. I found that to be incredibly, I, I don't have any background in medicine or anything like that. Now, I found this book to be extremely accessible because of the fact that you were not afraid to repeat yourself over and over again. And I think that took a lot of courage because I imagine your editor was probably saying, uh, hey, you said Tamiflu four times this chapter, maybe not anymore. And you said, nope, we're doing it. I, I, just, I found that really enjoyable. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. So um, when I was writing the book, I was aware of the fact that potentially the thesis that I was offering could be taken as rather audacious. I was trying to put myself in the mind of, say, physicians or regulators uh, or you know, patients who are convinced that this drug works for them really well. And I was trying to ask myself, would they be convinced by what I'm saying or would they be just on the hunt for problems with the book? And I, I, I was worried or I was aware that um, people might be looking for you know, um, different kinds of flaws. And so I really sweated over details. Um, so I made sure that just like every factual matter about every drug was well substantiated. And, and then there was a bit of maybe too much uh, signposting and flagging that, you know, here I argue this and here I argue that, but by the way, over there I argue this. And so I just wanted to make sure that all the yeah. pieces came together in a watertight way because, because it, is a, it is a bold thesis. Yeah, and and again, I, I found it to make I, I found it making the book uh, that it made the book even more accessible because when I'm reading, I'm always trying to remember how the pieces connect. And for you, uh, and I'm going to end with this point, but I kind of give you a, a brief little peek. I, I I think your book offers a roadmap of sorts that actually has much broader applicability than to just medicine. Um, but before getting to that, I did want to also just outline for people the one of the the, the key readerships you have for the book are other or other science, or how should I say this, philosophers of science, other philosophers of science. And so you use a very structured format. Um, is this a format that, when you, when you wrote this book, um, were you expecting most of the sales to be to people in the business, so to speak, of medical research? And have you heard from people that are more in the lay audience that have heard your book? What, what has their response been to, 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 the, to the book and to the idea of medical nihilism? Okay, yeah, thanks for that question. So, um, so when I started writing the book, I was pre-tenure in the North American university system. So I thought, I've got to write a book which is going to impress my philosophical colleagues. And that explains maybe why, you know, I, I use that, the formalism for the master argument. You know, there's like lots of footnotes, lots of references. It's a scholarly book. Um, and so it's, you know, written for professional professors. Um, but I, but I did try to write it so that, you know, physicians and patients would also, would also appreciate it. Um, since it's been published, the majority of the readers have been physicians and, and patients. And I, I get emails all the time from people saying, you know, I read your book, thanks. Um, um, I'm convinced by it. Um, most of the feedback has been positive like that. Once in a while, I'll, 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 I'll get a, an email or, or I'll read a review on Amazon or something, which is like, well, I read the Google Books version of it, and um, it was complicated, so I stopped reading there. <laughs> um, um, but, but on the whole, the feedback has been really, really positive. Yeah. That I, I think I know the Amazon reviews that I read 
before reading your book and I can confirm I saw this as well, <laughs> but I was like, it really, I mean, honestly, one of the things that made it kind of accessible is that the book's not very long. People can see this at home. It's not a very long book. It's maybe on the order of 200 pages or something like that. So it's not, it's not very long, uh, but that, those are mainly topics about the book itself. And again, I, I encourage anybody to go out and buy it. This is what I want to end on. And um, I will admit it, it it's kind of a, a much broader theme and I don't expect to spend too much time on it, but I just wanted to kind of, more give you kind of an idea of, of one of the ideas in this podcast that we talk about and why I think your book is so important. Um, the, the word I used before is roadmap. Um, I think one of the key challenges that our country will have talking about the United States will be the public of finding a way to more thoroughly engage on highly technical issues. That's a high order. And I know that it's a high order, but I think it's inevitable that we find a way as the public to be able to hold institutions accountable. And your book, even though it focuses on medicine, is I think broadly construed as an outline for how the public can engage on a variety of technical issues because the, the ideas that you lay out and the philosophical approach that you lay out has broader application than to just medical research. And one of the things that I would like to uh, kind of introduce you to one of the ideas, again, talking a little bit about over email, but kind of bring it up here, is uh, this, this idea or this thesis from uh, Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel, who essentially argue that since from about the 70s, uh, there's been a, a, a tremendous lack of technological innovation, technology here being broadly defined. And one of the examples they give, that uh, both of them give, is a lack of breakthrough in say cancer research or something like that. Um, and I, I think your, your book is actually very much, in, in a way, kind of supports their thesis because you're basically saying, in regards to medicine, that's absolutely true. That for several decades now, we really haven't had the number of breakthroughs that we wished we did have. Um, where I think you might disagree with, with at least Peter Thiel on this is uh, kind of where the bar should be for the future. Um, and also, I think you guys would have a disagreement about the FDA. But I wanted to kind of just present that to you as a broad idea, the, the idea of public engagement and then the idea of, of spurring technological innovation. Um, I know these are big topics. We'll kind of wrap up after that. But I wanted to give you some time to, to hear those ideas and see kind of where, where your mind takes them. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. So just I'll be very brief about it. So on the Peter Thiel idea of there being a kind of slowdown in technological breakthroughs. I, I think that that thesis is pretty compelling. The, the story he tells is pretty convincing. Um, I mean, of course we have this massive increase in computing power, but one of his points is like, you know, look at the uses that we're putting that computer, computing power to. Um, and medicine is a good illustration of this. So, I mean, uh, as I've said a couple of times, we've, we've had this period of kind of golden era of medical breakthroughs from say 1920 to 1960. But since then, um, and we, we've had very few discoveries that are akin to penicillin or type one, or insulin for type one diabetes or the polio vaccine. Um, so that, that era is behind us. Um, on, the, on the public engagement of science, I, re I really like your way of putting this. And I hadn't thought about it exactly in these terms before, but it's true that in the United States, but also in, in Europe and around the world, there, there is a really troubling situation in which there's this sort of anti-science sentiment and a pro-science sentiment, which are aligned with different political factions. And often the anti-science sentiment and the pro-science sentiment ends up looking really kind of naive. 
Um, so on the anti-science side, it's, well, we just don't trust experts. We don't believe in whatever, you know, climate change or vaccines or whatever. And on the pro-science side, it's, well, if you're criticizing science, then you're one of those anti-science people. Um, you know, obviously vaccines are good, obviously blah, 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 right? And so both sides, I mean, it's polarized and both sides are um, often frustrating, like naive in their approach. And I hadn't thought about the book in this way before yet, but but it is true that what I'm doing in the book is a, is both offering a set of tools with which one can criticize science, but um, not naively, but, but but rigorously. Um, and so ultimately the story in the book is, here's a way to be more scientific, um, exactly right. uh, but, but being critical about science and medicine. Yeah, I, I like to think of science in, in the US as kind of, there's the spectrum of denialism, science is in the middle, and then over on the other side is obedience. And obedience and denialism are not rigorous. They're not, they're, they're just different ways, there they are different ways of being stupid. And in the middle is science. And that is, that is how we should evaluate evidence at all times. And it's a point that you make and that also Nassim Taleb makes where he's like, I'm not being anti-science. I'm at, I, this is actually, this is what science actually looks like. What people think is science is not. And so, and, and you make the same point in, in your book as well. Um, I, I am hopeful and uh, we're going to do this through, through our, our Twitter and follow us on Twitter and everything else. But I would be extremely uh, hopeful that eventually in some way we could get people like you and seem to love Peter Thiel, Eric Weinstein, et cetera, all in one room, because I think you guys all have really important ideas that overlap over all of the, uh, several, several key points. And um, again, like I said, I, I, I think of Nassim Taleb as a roadmap. I think of Scott Adams as a roadmap. I'm adding to that list. I mean, a medical nihilism, I think, is a roadmap for people to understand how to get the public more engaged in, in science. Um, and so before closing out, I wanted just to give Joe a chance for, for any final questions or any final thoughts, and then we'll go to, to, to Jacob after that. Oh, Jacob, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I'm, I'm very grateful that we were able to have this conversation, and this was a great way for me to spend my Saturday. Thank you both very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You know, when I started out writing the book, I didn't imagine that people would be so interested. Um, and so I'm very grateful for the attention you've given the book. And, uh, and it's been a really interesting discussion for me. Great, everybody. Uh, again, closing out, a uh, great conversation, a uh, great book. Go ahead and buy Medical Nihilism by Jacob Sagan. Now you can find it on Amazon. You can have a, uh, there's a paperback version, a hardback version. Um, I bought the paperback version myself, uh, but that's uh, you know my own little uh, idiosyncrasies, uh, so to speak. But um, a really great episode, a lot of good ideas, a lot of good themes. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, we'll put all the details about Miles Davis below, as well as links to the book below as well. Um, but until next time, I'm Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford and for Jacob Sagan uh, saying thank you, and we will see you all next time.